Just a quick reminder that you can follow along with the locations, distances, and times on our interactive map. The link can be found on the day one page of our website, 122675.com. It's impossible to overstate the importance of Oscar's alibi to this story. If he was on Garden Street at 345, he could not have been 9 to 15 miles away in Exeter kidnapping Donna. At trial, Powell successfully argued two opposing theories to break this alibi. The first was that the freezer loading actually happened much earlier than 315 to 345. In this theory, Oscar did see the loading, but it was before he was observed at the Owens at 245. That would mean that the loading was complete and the trucks were gone before Bill Rose arrived at 2.30. The hospital admittance time, Kelly freezer pickup, Thomas's testimony, and Irwin's initial statement all make this easy to dismiss as impossible. However, it likely caused a lot of confusion and smoke in the minds of the jurors. The second argument was even more damaging. In that, Petty John had gone out to interview Thomas learned of the late arrival comment and other details of the freezer loading, and fed this information to Oscar. The assertion here was that Oscar was never there for the freezer loading at all. Oscar learned about the freezer details from Petty John, and no one saw him there. So he wasn't there. He would have no alibi for the time Donna had disappeared. As we covered in Chapter 1, Pell knew for a fact that Sergeant Bird had tried to get Thomas to say that he had given the words to Pettyjohn, but Thomas had no confusion on that point. Pettyjohn knew the words and about the freezer loading when he arrived at the Thomas house on December 31, 1975. We have Donahue's original handwritten case intake notes from the morning of December 27, 1975, and in those notes it clearly states that a freezer was being loaded across Garden Street. There is no question that Oscar relayed this information to Donahue while Donna was still a missing person. Unfortunately, the jury never heard any of that. The notes were never referenced. Petty John never testified, and Thomas was never asked about it in court. The jury was left with Powell's accusation and nothing more than Clifton's denial to dispute it. Nobody saw you there, did they? Pell used these words to devastating effect against Oscar on cross-examination and hammered it home during his closing arguments. Not only did Powell know this was a lie, but so did Oscar's own defense attorney and private investigator. It was 1980 before Oscar learned the truth. Reading a statement from Laverne Easley. One afternoon, around 3.30, I received a phone call from a detective. He asked if he could come and talk to my son, John. I gave my permission, and he arrived sometime after 5. He let me see the badge to prove he was a detective. He asked John if he remembered seeing a man working on the house next door to his friend, Brent, who lived on Garden Street. John remembered him and said they even talked to him for a few minutes. He also remembered the people across the street, the Thomases, or Thompsons, were moving. He also remembered a refrigerator and a pickup. The detective thanked us for the information and left. Everything I have written down is true, and I hope I have left nothing out. Mrs. Laverne Easley, September 8, 1980. This is testimony from Oscar Clifton's appeal hearing on July 7, 1976. The person testifying here is Laverne Easley. She's the mother of Johnny Gerber, also known as the blonde-haired boy. Do you recall how you were all seated once the interview began? It seems like he was sitting on the end of the sofa, and then John was next to him, and then I was next to John. Were you real near Johnny and the investigator when the interview began? Yes. Could you hear everything that was being said? Yes. Okay. Could you please tell us now the substance of the conversation between the man who came over and Johnny? Well... He'd asked John if he remembered being on Garden Street, and basically he asked if he remembered what was going on that day. I know John had told him he and his friend were playing that day. He also remembered the people who lived across the street from his friend Brent were moving, and he remembered seeing them move out a large appliance. He also remembered seeing a man who was working. I don't remember if it was on the house next to Brent or one or two houses down, but he remembered seeing a man working there. That's basically about it. 
did he say that he saw the man working there at the same time the freezer was being removed? I don't remember if it's exactly the same time, but he remembers seeing him working there. Now, you said that Johnny... Did Johnny say that he was on Garden Street that day? Johnny was there almost every day, yes. Do you know why he was there almost every day? They were building apartments in this area, and they had a large pile of dirt. And all the boys in the neighborhood congregated there to ride their bicycles over this large pile of dirt. Did he have any friends living on that street? Yes. Who were they? Uh, the ones I can remember now are Brent Trueblood. There was another boy named Brett Banfield, Tracy Artley, and some smaller boys. I don't remember. Now, did he describe the man to your son? The man who asked your son if he saw him that day, did he describe this man? Yes. Do you recall what the description was? A tall, blonde-headed man. That's about it. Do you recall... Did your son at any time say whether or not he actually talked to this man? Yes. It seems like John said he did talk to him for a few minutes. This is Prosecutor Jay Powell questioning Oscar Clifton at trial. Now, Mr. Clifton, when you went back to Garden Street, as you say you did, and you got there about 3.40, you were there for a couple minutes. You saw a kid, a blonde-headed kid, on a bike, didn't you? Yes, I did. And you have identified that kid, haven't you? Yeah, I did. And what is his name? That I don't know. How did you identify him? Did you see a picture of him? No, sir. Never seen him other than I told Mr. Pettyjohn and Mr. Donahue I described what the kid looked like. Okay. What did the kid look like? Blonde-headed. I'd estimate from 11, 12, 13 years old, somewhere in that area. He was right in front of my pickup truck. And at that point, Powell abruptly drops that line of questioning. Declaration of Johnny Dethriage. I, Johnny D. Dethriage, declare that I am a criminal investigator with the Tulare County District Attorney's Office. I was acting in that capacity on May 12, 1981, and have remained in that capacity continuously since that date. On May 12, 1981, I interviewed Ray Donahue regarding the Oscar Archie Clifton case and documented the results of that interview and the report attached to this affidavit. I declare under penalty of perjury that the foregoing is true and correct, executed on this 18th day of June, 1982, in Tulare County, California, Johnny D. Dethriage. On May 12, 1981, at approximately 14.33 hours, Responding Officer contacted Ray Donahue at his office in Visalia. Donahue agreed to discuss the Clifton case with Responding Officer. However, he was emphatic in declining to discuss subjects of a confidential nature. In response to questions by responding officer, Donahue stated that he first became aware of John Gerber during the Clifton trial on June 28, 1976. On that date, he assigned Robert Pettyjohn to contact Gerber and interview him. Pettyjohn was a private investigator working for Donahue on the Clifton case. According to Donahue, Pettyjohn did in fact contact Gerber and interviewed him. Pettyjohn then advised Donahue of the information obtained at the interview. Donahue stated that the information received was not beneficial to the case, so Gerber was not called to testify at trial. Donahue went on to state that he was subsequently contacted on March 2, 1981 by Clifton's present defense counsel, Mr. Bernstein. Bernstein was attempting to ascertain whether or not the fact that the blonde-haired boy had been interviewed by the police was ever disclosed to the defense. Donahue advised Bernstein that he was not aware of the fact. Bernstein signed a declaration to that effect and included it in the petition for the writ of habeas corpus. The declaration, however, refers to John Gerber and does not mention, quote, the blonde-haired boy. Donahue went on to explain at the time he was talking to Bernstein, he did not realize that John Gerber and the blonde-haired boy were one and the same person. According to Donahue, he became aware of that fact during the last week of April or the first week of May 1981. He immediately contacted Bernstein and advised him that Gerber had been known by the defense and was, in fact, interviewed by the defense. John Dethriage, May 14, 1981. An article from the Visalia Times Delta dated May 15, 1981. Donahue's death is believed to have occurred between midnight and 2 a.m. today, after his car hit an irrigation canal bank south of Corcoran. A spokesman for the Kings County Coroner's Office said Donahue had visible chest injuries, but the exact cause of death wouldn't be known until after an autopsy.
The spokesman said Donahue was traveling south on 10th Avenue, which has some bad curves, and comes to a dead end at Tucson Avenue. Donahue apparently failed to turn east onto Tucson. Instead, he kept going straight, and his vehicle was airborne about 60 feet before hitting the south side of the canal bank. Who was the blonde-haired boy, and why does he matter? As part of the alibi Oscar originally provided to Donahue and Pettyjohn, he mentioned talking to an 11-year-old blonde boy riding a bike on Garden Street around the time of the freezer loading. The house he was working on had been abandoned, and someone had been breaking out the windows. Oscar said he stopped the boy to ask him if he'd ever seen anyone involved in the vandalism. Prior to trial, Donahue and Petty John told Oscar that they had been unable to locate the boy, and it was decided not to mention him. In a rather bizarre twist, D.A. Powell randomly started questioning Oscar about this boy during cross, suddenly realized that Oscar didn't know that Petty John had found him, and dropped it. Johnny Gerber was the blonde-haired boy, and Petty John had interviewed him during the first days of the trial. Johnny confirmed that he had seen and talked to Oscar that afternoon, and Johnny's mother took him to the courthouse to testify on Oscar's behalf, but they were turned away by the defense. This all came to light in the fall of 1980, when Johnny's aunt contacted Oscar's appeal attorneys. Donahue denied any knowledge of contact with Johnny or his family, and it was assumed that the police had interviewed Johnny and then suppressed his testimony. Oscar was able to use this to get an appeals hearing. However, TCSO was unable to find any hint that one of its officers had ever interviewed Gerber, and they raised the possibility that it was Petty John. When questioned, Petty John, with Donahue's assistance, carefully crafted a reply letter, admitting to interviewing Johnny, but denying that Johnny confirmed Oscar's story. Petty John provided no sworn statement or interview reports from Johnny, and he claimed not to remember the substance of the conversation, just that it wasn't helpful to the defense. Petty John was unwilling to lie, but did work with Donahue on a cover story to explain failing to call Johnny and hiding him from Oscar. This admission came in the spring of 1981, shortly before Oscar's scheduled appeals hearing. In order to counter the accusation of suppression, the DA's office put its investigator, John Dethriage, on the case. Dethriage got Donahue to admit that he had lied to appeals counsel and to the court when he said that he did not know the identity of Gerber or his story. This was going to be devastating to Oscar's appeal. The state didn't suppress a witness who saw Oscar or confirmed his alibi. It was his own defense attorney. The same day that Death Riage filed his report with court, Donahue drove his car at high speed into a canal bank and died. Instead of driving home after the bar meeting in Tulare, he drove 45 minutes in the opposite direction, into the middle of nowhere, and nobody ever asked any questions. It turned out that Donahue was hiding a lot more than even Death Riage realized. Invoice from Robert Pettyjohn to Ray Donahue, July 16, 1976, in the matter of Oscar Archie Clifton, entry dated June 28, 1976. Interview Mrs. Frank Thomas and attempt to contact Johnny Gerber. Interview Mr. and Mrs. Gerber and Johnny Gerber. Entry dated June 29, 1976. Interview Brent Trueblood and Tracy Artley. Detective Chamberlain reporting. Today's date is June 22, 1976. This will be an interview conducted at 1726 South Garden in Visalia. I'll be interviewing Brent Trueblood. Present during interview, reporting officer, Detective H. Chamberlain. Brent Trueblood, and his mother, Darlene Hepner. Okay, first of all, Brent, why don't you just scoot up to the end of the couch like I am? Now, would you, to get started here, just tell me your full name and your home address. Daryl Brent Trueblood, 1726 South Garden. And talk a little bit slower and a little bit louder, all right? It's Daryl Brent Trueblood. Okay, and your address is 1726 South Garden. Right. Okay. Do you go by Brent? Yes. 
Okay, Brent, do you remember the day after Christmas, December 26, 1975? Do you remember anything about that day? Yep. Okay. In the afternoon, were you next door? It would be the next door east. Yes. At the Thomas residence? Yes. Okay. Where were you over there? Standing next to the garage. Standing next to the garage? Okay. Is that located near the front of the house? Yes. Okay. Do you remember what time of the day this was that you were over there? It was in the morning. During the morning? Morning or afternoon. I don't remember exactly. You don't remember exactly. That's all right. But it was sometime during the daylight hours. Yes. Okay. Did anything happen there at Thomas's house that you remember? Anything out of the ordinary? They were just moving a freezer and some bicycles. And who was moving them? Frank and some friends. Frank... Thomas. Thomas is the man that lives there? Yes. Did some people come over there to help you move these? Yeah. Do you remember what kind of vehicles they was in and how many people there was? There was a pickup and another heavy-duty truck. What color was the pickup? Red. An older pickup or a newer one? Older. Okay. How many people were in it? Three. And were they all males or females or what was in it? All male. Okay, and about how old were they? Were they kids or adults or...? Two adults, one kid. Okay. Now, how about the heavy-duty truck? What color was it? Grayish-white. Okay. Was there anything special about it? It had dual wheels on the back and a tailgate that lifted up and down. Oh, it had a lift gate on the back? Yeah. Okay. And how many people were in it? Three. Were they men, women, kids? Men. Well... Two men and one kid. How long were they there? Do you know? About an hour, hour and a half. Okay, and this was sometime during the daylight hours. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. Did you notice any... Do you know where was this house that they were remodeling right on the corner? Or they have remodeled right on the corner of Bridge? Yeah. Right over here. Okay. Was there anyone working at that house that day? Yeah. And were they working there during the time that these people came over to get the freezer? Yeah. And how many people were working there? Do you know? One that I could see. Okay. Was there any vehicles there? Yeah, a white GMC. A white GMC pickup? Yes. Was it a newer one or an older one? Newer. Where was it at? Backed up to the front door. And did it have any racks on it or anything like that? No. Did it have any special pipes or wheels or anything on it that would make it stand out from any other white GMC pickup? No, it was all stock. Okay, are you sure it was a GMC? Yeah, I saw the emblem on the side of the fender. You saw an emblem on the side of the fender? Yeah. Do you remember what was on that emblem? It said GMC with a red background and there was some numbers on the side of the engine, but I didn't see them. You didn't read the numbers? No. Okay. Are you familiar with pickups? I mean, do you look at them and know the different ones? Yeah. Okay. Did you notice the person that was working there? Did you see that person at all? Yeah. And when and where did you see that person? Well, he walked out the front door to the back of the pickup, turned around, and walked back in. Okay. In reference to the guys loading the freezer that day, that were over there to get the freezer... Was it during that time that he walked out, or was it during another time that day? It was during when they were doing loading the freezer. Okay, and where were you at when they were looking at him? Next door at Thomas's in the driveway. And you had a clear view of that house over there that they were remodeling? Yeah. Did you ever ride over there on your bicycle, or were you ever at any time any closer to that pickup than the Thomas's house? No. So the closest you saw that pickup would have been from the Thomas's house that day. Right. Had you ever seen that pickup before that you remember? No, not that I can remember. Did you ever see it there afterwards that you can remember? No. Okay. Had you ever seen that man there before or since that you can remember? No. Do you have any idea what kind of work he was doing in the house? If he was a plumber or electrician or, you know? I don't know what he was doing. He could have been doing anything. How long was he there before the people came over with the freezer? 
I mean, did he work all day there, or was he just there for a short period of time, or, or what? I don't know. I was in the house most of the time before the guys with the freezer came, and then we were outside. Uh, that was that was the first time I saw him there. Okay. So mostly the only time he was outside was while those guys were yeah there about the freezer next door. Yeah. Okay. Can you, as best as you can remember, describe the guy? First of all, was he a white male or Mexican or black? White. Okay. Now, as best as you can remember, about how old do you think he was? In his early 20s. In his early 20s? Yeah. Okay. Was he fat, thin? He was skinny. Skinny? Yeah. Okay. Tall or short, medium? Tall. Tall? Yes. How about his hair? What color was his hair? Sandy brown. Okay. By sandy brown, do you mean light brown or dark brown or... Well, why don't you explain just what you mean? Sandy brown? Okay. Does that... Sandy's kind of an odd word. Do you, you know... I'd like to get a little more specific. Do you mean it was brown like my hair, kind of dark brown, or was it a lighter brown color or... It was sandy brown. You don't understand whether sandy is light or dark? Well, it depends on what kind of sand you got. But what kind of sand did his hair have? I mean, what color of sand was that? I don't know. Brownish. It was real light brown, sort of almost blonde. Okay, it was light brown, almost blonde? Yeah, blonde color. Okay. Did he have any, did you notice any glasses, any mustache, any whiskers, or long sideburns, or anything like that? No. I know he didn't have no glasses, because I could see. Do you know whether or not he had a mustache? No, I don't think so. Okay. How about, you don't think so? I don't think he had one. I didn't get to see him that well. I would. You did see his face, though. Just a side view. Okay, the side. You saw him from the side. Do you think you would know him if you saw him again? Maybe. I don't know. Okay. I showed you some pictures here before we started this interview, Brent. Did you see the man that you saw there the day after Christmas working on the house? Did you see him in any of the pictures? No, but two of them resembled him a little bit. Okay, now you're referring to pictures number two and number four. Yeah. Okay, they resembled him a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, but as far as you know, neither one of them is him. Yeah. Okay. Did you notice when he came in that day, was that pickup still there? Mm-hmm. When he came back in from when the people were loading the freezer, do you know if the pickup was still there then? Yeah, I think it was. Okay. Now, were you out there when the guys left with the freezer, or did you come back in before they left? Well, we came in just as they were leaving. Okay, just as the people were leaving? Yeah. And did you happen to go back outside later? Mm-hmm. Did you know how much later? About an hour, hour and a quarter. Okay, and was the pickup there then? Do you know? No, not that I remember. Do you remember it being there then? No, but a friend was with me and he looked over. Okay, I don't need to know what your friend knows. Just what you know, okay? Okay. What you've told me so far has been what you know or what someone told you. What I know. Okay. Nobody told you anything that you don't remember yourself, really. Okay. This guy that you saw over there that day around the house, do you remember anything about what he was wearing? Yeah. He was wearing gray overalls. Okay. By overalls, do you mean like the one-piece type of overall or the kind with the bib in the front? The one-piece. One-piece. Kind of like a jumpsuit. Are you familiar with what a jumpsuit is? Mm-hmm. Okay. They were regular overalls like you work on a car or something? Yeah. Okay. Did you notice his shoes? No. Didn't notice his shoes? No. Did you see any other cars over there at all that day? Anyone else working over there? Not that I remember, no. Okay. Is there any particular reason why now? I mean, it's been six or seven months since then that you remember this? Is there anything that has caused you to remember or has anyone come around and talked to you or something that you made you pay strict attention to what you saw that day? No, I just remember stuff. I see. Has anyone else, either from the sheriff's office or anywhere else, come and talk to you? Nope. Okay. Have you discussed removing the freezer and this man who was working over at that house? Have you discussed that with your family before today? No. 
Has anyone asked you any questions about it? Nope. Okay. How about your mom? Did you talk to your mom at all about it? No, not before today. Not before today? Right. Okay. Thank you, Brent. This interview being concluded. This is Defense Counsel Bernstein questioning Chamberlain at Oscar's appeal hearing on the True Blood suppression. This is July 16th, 1981. How long have you been a deputy sheriff? Uh, for approximately eight years. Were you assigned to do some criminal investigative work in connection with the Clifton murder trial in 1976? Yes, I was. Pursuant to your duties, did you interview a number of witnesses, potential witnesses in that case? I did. Okay. Do you recall interviewing a young boy by the name of Brent Trueblood? I have no recollection of that interview. No independent recollection. Did you tape record? Was it your general practice to tape record interviews which you did conduct? Yes, it was. Now, is this the photo spread which you showed Brent Trueblood at the time you interviewed him? I have no idea because I have no recollection of even the interview. How did you obtain these pictures here? This was in my briefcase, in the back of my briefcase, in the lid, when I was going through things, looking for old notes, etc., for my investigation Monday, I, I believe Monday afternoon, and I found this in there. Mr. Chamberlain, did you hear on the tape purporting when Brent Trueblood said that the man as numbered two or four resembled the man he saw that day? Yes, I did. Okay, will you please look at picture number four there? Is that the man in court here today? Yes, he is. Who is that man? Mr. Clifton, seated at council table. Can you please turn over that picture, and can you please read what it says on the back of that? It has the number four, has my initials, HRC, and it has the case number, 7519161, and the date, 6-22-76. Is that date on all of those pictures there? Yes, it is. They're all marked the same, numbered according to the position in the folder. This is Prosecutor O'Hara questioning Chamberlain. Mr. Chamberlain, how many witnesses did you contact in that period of time, from the time of December 26, 1975, when Donna Jo Richmond was killed, until after the trial? How many witnesses did you contact? Concerning this case? Yes. I'm not sure. Eight? 10, 15, just a guess. As a matter of fact, you don't even recall at this time interviewing Brent Trueblood, even after listening to the tape. Is that correct? I do not know. How long have you worked with the Sheriff's Department, sir? Eight years. Is it your habit upon making reports to give those reports to your supervisors? Yes, it is. Do you do that in all cases? Yes, sir. Directing your attention to approximately June 22nd of 1976, when this tape recording of Brent Trueblood allegedly took place, why did you go out there? Do you recall at this time? I don't know. Would it have been at somebody's direction? It could have been, but I don't know. Did you transmit any information you got to anybody else? In regards to this entire investigation? In regards to the investigation on Garden Street on the 22nd of June, 1976. I have no independent recollection of what I did on Garden Street in June of 1976. On June 22nd, 1976, that was during the pendency of the Clifton trial. Is that correct? That's correct. Would you have transmitted anything you learned to your supervisor? I would have. And who was your supervisor? Sergeant Bob Bird. This is Prosecutor O'Hara questioning Bird at Oscar's appeals hearing on the True Blood suppression. It's July 16th, 1981. Did you inform Mr. Powell of any information you received from your investigators? Uh, yes, all of it. Did you do that in all cases? Yes. Do you have any specific recollection at this time, five years later, about Brent Trueblood? I do not. How did you and Mr. Powell work during the course of that trial? Did you meet in court or did you meet after court or? We met before court, we were in court together and we met after court. How long would these meetings last as a general rule after court? From an hour to several hours. Did this happen on a daily basis? Yes, it did. Were you in very close contact with Mr. Powell at that time? Daily contact. 
To your knowledge, is there any information that you received that Mr. Powell did not receive? No, there is not. Defense Attorney Gardner questioning Bird. Sergeant Bird, is it your testimony today that Brent Trueblood was not contacted by the police? I don't recollect him being contacted. I'm not saying he wasn't. I don't have any recollection at this time of him being contacted. Is it your testimony that you weren't told that he was contacted? No, it is not. I could have been told, but I don't recall it at this time. I'm saying if I was told about it, I would have told Mr. Powell about it. Are you saying if Detective Chamberlain told you he investigated, he interviewed Brent Trueblood, you would have told... Mr. Powell. Mr. District Attorney Powell. Yes. Mr. Bird, do you have any recollection of Laverne Lamb? Yes. Do you have a recollection of a Ray Furnace? I know who he is, yes. How about a Gene Riddell? The name sounds familiar. I don't recall talking to him. Let me... Perhaps I've been unclear. I'm not asking if you spoke to these people. I'm just asking if you remember the names. I don't know if I remember the names in this case or if I just remembered the name. Thank you. Do you recall if any police investigator ever spoke to a John Gerber? No police investigator of the sheriff's office. And the police department didn't assist in this case at all. Mr. Bird, do you recall if anyone from the sheriff's office spoke with John Gerber? Not that I recall, no. Not that you recall? No. And nor do you recall if anyone spoke to Brent Trueblood? No, I do not. You were in court today when we played the tape taken by Detective Chamberlain of Brent Trueblood. Yes. So, the suppression of that Trueblood interview is extremely troubling. TCSO found it just before the Gerber Appeals hearing in July 1981. It was on a cassette tape found in an unrelated case evidence box. The interviewing officer, Chamberlain, testified that he gave the tape to Sergeant Byrd and that he had no idea why it was not transcribed along with the other taped interviews or how it ended up filed with the wrong case. True Blood clearly described a tall, skinny, blonde man with no glasses working at the Rose job site during the exact time of the freezer loading. He picked out two possible photos from those shown to him by Chamberlain. One of them was Oscar. He described Oscar's white pickup backed up to the front door, and although Oscar's truck was a Ford rather than a GMC, it did have the distinctive red emblem on the side, just as Trueblood described. He saw Oscar loading the stovetop parts from the front door into the back of the truck, and the truck still being there when the freezer guys left. The overalls, he describes, matched the ones seized by TCSO later that night at Oscar's house. Rose was clear that nobody else was hired to work on the house during that week. So who was the man Trueblood saw working there, if not Oscar? It's pretty obvious why TCSO and the DA would not want this statement to see the light of day, but they claimed that it was disclosed to Donahue, and he agreed not to use it. This actually seems believable, given the fact that Pettyjohn interviewed both Trueblood and Gerber a week later, boys they told Oscar they had been unable to find. This is Prosecutor O'Hara questioning Tim Donahue at Oscar's appeal hearing in July of 1981. Would you state your name and occupation? My name is Timothy Joseph Donahue, and I'm an attorney here in Visalia. Was your father Ray Donahue? Yes, he was. Is he the Ray Donahue who was the defense attorney at the trial of People versus Oscar Clifton? Yes. Has he since been deceased? Yes, he has. Are those the files you have with you that your father had in his office concerning the Clifton trial? Yes, they are. And is that the same office you now have? Yes, it is. All right. Have you had the opportunity to go through your file, that particular file? Yes, I have. Well, I have two original documents I'd like marked as respondents next in order. They are a Xerox copy of the originals that appear in Mr. Donahue's file. All right, have counsel for the petitioner seen these documents? The court asks. Defense counsel Gardner. About three minutes ago. I'd like to have a copy if I could. Gardner questioning Donahue. Mr. Donahue, when did your father pass away? 
May 15th of this year. Are you the executor of his estate? No, I am not. Are you aware that the executor of his estate has all his files and everything? Are you aware that's the way the procedure works? Do you recall receiving a subpoena from me, Mr. Donahue, about six weeks ago? Yes, I do. Do you recall calling me up the day before you were supposed to be here and telling me you could not produce the file because you were not the executor? I believe it was two or three days before, and I explained to you at the time that I was working in Mr. Donahue's office in the capacity of winding down his corporation. I also started my own business and that I was not the executrix of his estate. And I wanted to notify you of that fact because I thought at the time that it would be incumbent upon you to subpoena that person in order to get the documents that you desire. But you've brought the documents today without, without regard to the subpoena of the executrix. Pardon? You have brought the documents here today even though you're not the executor of the estate? That's correct. Did Sergeant Deathriage from the Tulare County Sheriff's Office ever approach any of your office and go through this file? Yes, he did. When was that? I believe it was the day before yesterday. This is the file that your father put together with regard to his handling of Oscar Clifton's defense. It would be the file that is at his office, which includes both himself, his secretary, and I'm sure Mr. Pettyjohn played a part in getting that file together also. Are you aware of the attorney-client privilege? Yes, I am. The position I'm trying to bring out, and what I would like to get on the record, is the fact that someone from the sheriff's office, without Mr. Clifton knowing, went through the entirety of the defense file from 1975-76. Did you contact Mr. Clifton prior to allowing Sergeant Deathriage to go through the file? No, I didn't. Did you contact either Mr. Bernstein or myself? No, I didn't. After Donahue's death, Oscar's appeal hearing was delayed. Tim Donahue, Ray's son, left his job at the prosecutor's office and took over his father's law practice. Oscar's appeals attorney sent Tim a subpoena, requesting that he produce the original defense file from 1975-76. Review of this file was critical because Oscar's appeal hinged on whether or not Ray Donahue had known about Gerber and Trueblood's eyewitness testimony. Tim refused to release the files to Oscar's defense team. But then, inexplicably, the prosecutor appeared at the appeal hearing with some of these documents in hand. As we just heard, Tim Donahue had allowed the prosecutor's investigator into his office to review Oscar's original defense file, the very same file he refused to provide to Oscar. This violated attorney-client privilege since neither Oscar nor his defense attorneys consented to the sharing of this file. It is impossible to know what else was in that file. Perhaps the missing Petty John interviews with Gerber and Trueblood. The only documents produced in court were beneficial to the prosecution, especially the invoice which proved that Donahue knew that Petty John had, in fact, interviewed the eyewitnesses. This invoice killed Oscar's appeal, which was based on the state suppressing exculpatory evidence. Since Donahue was dead, he wasn't forced to defend his decision not to use the eyewitnesses, and the court could only speculate that it had been some type of calculated trial tactic. Back in 1981, actual innocence was not grounds for appeal. Only errors in procedure or constitutional rights could be considered. The appeals judge commented on the lack of evidence in the case, but his hands were tied. The state had not suppressed the witnesses. Donahue had. The jury never got to hear from these two eyewitnesses who were able to place Oscar on Garden Street at the time Donna went missing. This is Petty John's report of January 8th, 1976. He's reporting Oscar Clifton's movements uh, at the later part of the afternoon of December 26, 1975. He stated that when he arrived at this time at the Garden Street house, a pickup truck arrived at the house across the street and that they were either loading or unloading a refrigerator or deep freeze and that the man at the house was standing at the edge of the street when the pickup truck arrived and that he overheard him say to the driver, well, you finally got here or something to that effect. He stated he then removed the cooking stove, which is a deep well burner stove, and put same in his truck to take home to clean. 
At this time, he also probed around in the yard close to the house, endeavoring to locate the water main into the house. After this, he then drove to a small market and gasoline station on Houston Avenue, just a short ways from the Danuba Highway, where he purchased $5 worth of gasoline. He stated he had gone here for gas, as gasoline here was only 52 cents a gallon. He stated it is a self-serve-yourself station, and after getting the gasoline, walked into the store and handed the man the $5, giving him a $10 bill and receiving a $5 bill in change. He stated the clerk to whom he paid the money was a younger fellow. He then went directly to his home at 14402 Avenue 264 by Zalia. He stated he made a phone call or two immediately upon arriving home and was home 10 or 15 minutes and then took the family car going over to the Doula's place nearby where his wife was at the time. This is Defense Counsel Donahue questioning Clifton at trial. It's July 6, 1976. All right, when you did return to the Garden Street property, did you see any people there? Yes, I did. Now, were they at the Garden Street property or were they located elsewhere? They were at, across from where I was and on Garden, what they call Garden Street. Okay, they were across the street? Yes, they was. And who, how many people do you remember seeing over there? Okay, uh, at where I was outside of the house there, and I seen the man and his wife to start with, and then I heard him say, hun, they finally got here, some words to that, as two pickups pulled up. And what did those people do, if anything? The one pickup was red, and it had a deep freeze or an ice box of some sort in it. They moved it to a side, loaded a big, long, green, pea green or something, deep freeze beside of it, and then they loaded some bicycles into the other pickup. All right. Approximately how long did you remain there at the Garden Street property, Mr. Clifton? Well, I went from there uh, somewhere around 10 to 4 or maybe a little, maybe 15 till. I removed a lock and I took it to Rich Brothers to see about getting a key made. Now, when you got to Rich Brothers, were you able to have a key made? No, I asked the boy about it, and he stated it. He thought he could, but he wasn't for sure, so the guy that made the keys would be off to Monday. All right. Then where did you go from Rich Brothers? I went from there down court to Houston, where I bought gas from Piarelli's on account it was cheaper than any place in town, and I put gas in my pickup, drove back down the opposite one way. I don't, I don't know the name of going back the opposite of court, the one-way street. Locust? Locust. Uh, I went to Tulare. Uh, I went east on Tulare, down Santa Fe, crossed, well, it actually dead ends, turned left and went to Lover's Lane, and uh, that went, I went right to 264 to my home. All right. Now, Mr. Clifton, to the best of your recollection, approximately what time was it that you arrived at your home? Somewhere around in, I would estimate, from 25 after 4 till 20 till, maybe 25 till. This is TCSO Report Chamberlain from December 27th, 1975. He's referring to questioning that occurred at the Clifton residence when they originally went to arrest Clifton and Carter. And so this is approximately 1.30 a.m. on 12-27-75, probably less than six hours after Donna's bike was discovered. After responding officer had arrived, Sergeant Bird brought a suspect from the suspect's residence who was identified as Richard Allen Carter, 18 years old. Responding officer and Sergeant Bird interviewed him in Sergeant Bird's car. Sergeant Bird advised Carter of his Miranda rights and he waived them. Responding officer took a short written statement from Carter in which he stated that he had been living with the Clifton family for less than a year. He advised that on 12-26-75, he left the Clifton residence between 7.30 a.m. and 8 a.m. and returned at about 4 p.m. He stated suspect Clifton was home with his family when he left, but was not home when he returned. Carter stated Clifton arrived home at about 4.15 p.m. driving his pickup, the white Ford. 
Carter stated Clifton then left in his car the Mercury. Carter was then transported to headquarters where he signed the above-mentioned statement. January 6, 1976. I, Richard Allen Carter, make the following voluntary statement to Robert J. Pettyjohn, who has identified himself to me as a licensed private investigator. I have the nickname of Rick. I'm 18 years of age, finished the 11th grade of high school at Woodlake, California, and presently reside with my parents, Jim and Wanda Carter, Woodlake, California. I am a boyfriend of Alice Annette Clifton, daughter of Oscar Clifton, and have been living with the Clifton family and employed part-time by Mr. Clifton for about six months. However, I moved back to the, my home with my parents in Woodlake just before Christmas. I came back to the Clifton home to visit on Christmas Day, arriving in the morning. I spent the day and that night at the Clifton home. The next day, Friday, the 26th, I left the Cliftons in the early morning and went to Woodlake and worked at my dad's store until about 10.30 a.m., returning to the Clifton home. I left there about 11 a.m., going to Mert Dula home, north of Visalia, just off the Danuba Highway. Rake leaves till about 2 p.m. and returned to the Clifton home. I stayed at the Clifton home, then continuously the rest of that day and that night, until arrested there about 2 a.m. Saturday morning. I drive a 1961 Ford pickup, primer color, light gray, but did use the Clifton's white pickup, 1967 Ford pickup, on occasions when working for him. While at the Clifton home uh, from about 2 p.m. on the 26th till about 2 a.m. on the 27th, both the Clifton girls were there all the time. Their smaller brother, Jeremy, was then over at the Avery Doula's residence close by. Mrs. Clifton had left home mid-morning, the 26th, going shopping and returned with some packages about 2 p.m., staying only a few minutes and then left again with her sister, Avery. I don't recall her coming back to the house after that. Uh, during the afternoon, Mrs. Mr. Clifton came home about 4.30 p.m., I'd been waiting for a telephone call from a friend who was supposed to call at 4, but he hadn't called. I remember looking at the clock, and it was 4.30, and Oscar came in just a few minutes after that. He was driving his pickup truck. He went directly into the bedroom, staying five or six minutes, making a phone call, then went into the bathroom for a couple minutes. I recall hearing the toilet flush and washing his hands. He asked where Alice, his wife, was, and we told him she was over at Glenda's. He then left taking the family car, a red and white Mercury marquee, saying that he was going over to the Averys. They, the Cliftons and Averys, returned about 7 p.m. to drop the Cliftons' little boy off, then went out to dinner. The Cliftons returned home about 9 p.m., watched TV a little bit, then went to bed. When I left the Clifton home on Friday the 26th, about 7.30 to 8 a.m., Mr. Clifton was up, but not then dressed. When he came home that afternoon, about 4.30, he was wearing a white pullover sweater and, I think, brown pants. He wore no hat or jacket over the sweater, and I cannot recall what type of shoes he was wearing. He didn't change his clothes after he came in, and when he left about 15 minutes later, he was wearing the same clothing he had on when arriving home about 4.30. When he came in about 4.30, he acted in his normal manner. He didn't appear to be excited or frustrated or upset about anything. There was nothing unusual about his clothing he was wearing then, such as being dirty or bearing spots of any kind, ruffled up or torn. His shoes were not muddy, leaving no tracks on the carpet, and I do not recall whether or not he was wearing his leg brace at that time, but he usually does wear his brace. He, he, walk, he does walk with a noticeable limp. This is Petty Jones' report of January 8, 1976, statement of Ellis Clifton. She stated that she and Mrs. Dula went about their shopping, spending the rest of the morning and afternoon, arriving back at the home of Mrs. Dula right about 5 o'clock that afternoon. She stated it was only a few minutes after their arrival until her husband, defendant, came to the Dula residence. What time did Oscar arrive home? For Oscar, the difference between 4.15 and 4.45 turned out to mean dying in prison. Although Oscar's teenage daughters were both home when he arrived, and placed the time between 4.20 and 4.30, their testimony was dismissed as biased. 
Carter's statement, right after he was awakened, handcuffed, and put in the patrol car, said it was 4.15. However, by 9 a.m., Carter's statement had changed Oscar's arrival home to 4.45. It's clear from the transcript of that second interview that Carter had been coached and had trouble keeping the story straight. As we've been told, the reason was pretty simple. Sergeant Byrd told Carter that unless he changed parts of his story, they were going to charge him with Donna's kidnapping. Carter was only 18 and had spent the night in jail. His father encouraged him to distance himself from the Cliftons as quickly as possible. To be fair, Carter had no idea what Oscar had been doing all day and may have thought Oscar did it, or he was just trying to save himself. If Oscar left Garden Street at 345, which we feel is well established, he should have arrived home sometime between 415 and 430. He drove about five minutes north from the job site to get to the cheapest gas, and then 15 minutes from the gas station to home. He may have made another hardware stop along the way, but that's not certain. In any case, 30 minutes was plenty of time. Although it's not contained in any of the statements or trial testimony, Oscar later remembered that he had taken time to remove his large air compressor from the back of his truck and lock it in the garage before he came in the house. This could explain why it seemed that he was seen in the house slightly later than the time he arrived home. He did nothing strange during the short stay at home. The three teenagers all saw and interacted with him. He called Bill Rose to give him an update on the gas and electrical meter installations, but didn't reach him. He used the bathroom and took his medication. He did not change his clothes or shoes or put anything in the washer. Everything was completely normal. At 5 p.m., it was just getting dark, and Oscar's pickup was now parked unlocked in his driveway. The garage was between the house and the truck, so the kids at home had no way of seeing or hearing it for the rest of the evening. This is TCSO Missing Person Report, dated December 26, 1975. Friday, December 26, 1975, time 1915, received by McCarthy, received from Nancy Richmond, mother. Missing person, Donna Jo Richmond, female, white, age 14, Height 5 foot, weight 89 pounds, hair blonde, eyes blue, wearing dark green pants with matching jacket. Missing since Friday, December 26, 1975, at 15.30 from home. Attends Exeter High School, whereabouts unknown. Responding officer contacted Richmond regarding her missing daughter. She related that subject spike was found three quarters of a mile northwest of residence. She also related that dew was on the bike and it seemed as if the bike was there for some period of time. She related that her daughter had absolutely no reason to run away and that she had left the residence at approximately 1330 and her girlfriends last saw her at 1530. She believes foul play involved and that subject may have been picked up by unknown suspect. This is Prosecutor Jay Powell questioning Don Richmond at trial, June 25th, 1976. All right, and what time was it approximately when you returned home? Right, uh, just about five o'clock. I'm not sure if it was like five till or five after, very close proximity. All right, when you returned home, was Donna there? No, sir. And were you concerned at that point? Yes. All right, and what did you do? Well, at that point, I didn't do anything right then. My wife had made some calls to friends and church and different places, and she was preparing dinner, and oftentimes the children on the way home, their grandparents live very close, and they'd stop by their grandparents, and we've had animal projects. Uh, they had sheep and a hog and such, and uh, they could be right there at home and not be visible. All right. And so you say your wife was checking. Then what did you do? One of the projects that she had to do was that Donna had to do was take care of some neighbors, I would say, probably one and a half miles away from there to feed their animals while they were gone over Easter holidays. So we got in our pickup truck and 
which is not uncommon. And Well, this wasn't Easter holiday, was it? Did you say Easter holiday? Oh, I beg your pardon. Christmas holiday. I'm sorry. All right. And so we went to the Fielding's house, whose animals she had been taking care of. Now you say we. Who do you mean we? Nancy and I, my wife and I, went to the Fielding's to see if perhaps she was there, Donna was there, and if she wasn't. So we returned home, and then I asked Nancy, who did she call, and what kind of responses were there? And she said that she'd called the Stewart family, and she'd called the Britton family, and she'd called down to the church that we go, especially the girls frequently, and she called the Weissenberg family. And so then minutes kept clicking away, and I'm kind of short-tempered, and I said what exactly went on. Then what did you do? After you learned that Donna was nowhere to be found from your friends, what did you do then? Then I, we, uh, got in the truck and went on out to to the Don Lee family home, which is north and east of Exeter. We went one direction out there and didn't see her anywhere on her bicycle. Thought perhaps she could have had a flat tire. We came back another direction and did not find her immediately. Uh, went in and called the Exeter Hospital. Uh, they had no report of any youngsters there, so I called the Sheriff's Office. All right. And you reported it to the Sheriff's Office? Yes. Now, was it daylight or dark by that time? Dark. It was dark. All right. And after you reported it to the Sheriff's Office, what did you do next? My son and a friend of his had already commenced the search in the friend's vehicle and hardly just practically instantaneously after I hung up from talking to the Sheriff's Office, these two boys came back to the house and said that they had found Donna's bicycle. Mr. Donahue, if your honor please, just Powell. All right, let me ask this. In any event, they came back to the house, and did you then respond and go with them? Yes, sir. All right. Now then, when the boys, after you'd called the sheriffs and the boys came back, you've told us that you went somewhere with the boys. Would you show us on the map where you went? We came down list. Would you speak up so we can hear you back over here? We drove down, drove down west on List Avenue to, this is a privately owned avenue between orchards, vineyards. It's methods that ranchers get around their own properties. All right. And we turned north, north. And then did the boys take you to a location? They took me to a location just around the corner between these two orange groves. At that location, what did you observe? My daughter's bicycle. Now, was the on which side of that little road was the bicycle that you have mentioned? On the south side. And approximately how far west was it from the intersection? 60 to 80 feet. All right. Now, by the way, Mr. Richmond, you are very familiar with this area, aren't you? Yes, sir. All right. Now, on this map, you'll see that these roads are ruler straight in here between the groves. Now... Is that the way it is in real life? No. Throughout the year, mud holes develop, and they're not mostly scraped and filled, so the roads meander from one part of the grove to the other. Now, from Firebaugh, if you are right up there at the top of the map from Firebaugh, and you're looking down that north-south road you just told us about between the groves, can you see the area where your child's bicycle was found? No. This is Prosecutor Jay Powell questioning David Richmond at trial on June 25th, 1976. All right. Now, was there a time on December 26, 1975 that you commenced a search for your sister? Yes. Would you tell us, was it daytime or nighttime when you started to search? Just after dark. And were you by yourself in the search? No. Who was with you? James Diet. Is that a friend? Yes. And how was it that Jim Diet came to your house? I called him and told him that my sister was missing. And what area did you commence a search in? The avenue that we usually ride home from town on our bicycles. All right. And where did you and where is this usual route that you're telling us about that you go on your bicycles? Right down Firebaugh to this side of the railroad tracks, down to here and across, down to List and home. 
All right. Now, when you started this search, I think you said it was dark. Is that right? Just after dark. All right. Did you have anything to help you in your search? Did you have flashlights? Two flashlights. Each of you had a flashlight? Yes. And where did you go on this search? Down list, down this ave. Then we turned here, and her bicycle was right about there. All right. And the bicycle? You've indicated an area where it says bike on the map. Yes. Is that right? Right. All right. Will you take the stand, please? Was the bicycle standing up when you found it? No. How was it? Laying on its side. All right. Did that bike have a kickstand on it? Yes. All right. Was Did you notice if the kickstand was up or down? It was up. That would indicate that... Is that how you drive it? You ride it when it's up? Is that right? Right. Now, what did you do once you found the bicycle? What did you do? We started searching the orange groves to the north and south at that avenue. All right. Would you just take the pointer and point out to the jury where it was that you searched? My friend Jim went this way. Uh, I went this way, almost to Firebaugh, and then back. All right. Thank you. Now, when you and Jim were out there, did you touch the bicycle? No. Did you erase any marks or tracks that might have been there? No. After you searched, by the way, in your search, did you find Donna? Uh-uh. All right. What did you do after that? Went back to the house and got my dad. And when you got your dad, then what did you do? Went back to the scene of the bicycle. Now, when your father and your friend came back with you the second time, did you, when you got to the house, did you just immediately go back to the scene? I can't remember. All right. In any event, you took your father back to the scene. Yes. All right. Now, when your father and you and your friend were there again, did you touch the invoice book? No. Did you see anyone else pick up the invoice book? No. Did you see anyone touch the bicycle? Nobody touched the bicycle. All right. Did you erase any tracks? No. All right. What did you do after you got there with your father again, after you showed him the scene? Looked in the orange grove some more. All right. Did you find Donna? No. It's really difficult to describe in words what it's like where Donna's bike was found. An orange grove sounds sunny and happy, but the little road above List feels desolate and claustrophobic. It's impossible to imagine a tiny 14-year-old girl ever riding there alone. It's completely invisible from the nearby houses and roads. It is one of the last places in Tulare County that a stranger would expect to find an attractive young girl riding by just before dark. Did a stranger really happen to encounter Donna in that grove? There was a lot of speculation about Donna's likely route from Don Lee's home. All of them included a mix of rural roads and grove roads, and it would have added up to 4.3 miles. Sergeant Bird's son was timed making the same ride in 25 minutes, but it's unlikely he was wearing platform sandals like Donna was that day. If Donna made it to where her bike was found, she would have arrived there no earlier than 4.10 p.m. In any case, Donna would have ridden on several of Exeter's main roads and directly through a busy part of town. It was 4 p.m. on Friday, and many people had the day off for Christmas. Others were making their way home from work or shopping in time for dinner. It was full daylight, and not one person reported seeing Donna once she left Don Lee's house. The paper put out a plea for information the next morning, and still got nothing. Is it reasonable to think that Donna made that ride without being seen? Donna's parents made four trips passing by the spot where her bike was found before calling the police. They drove to the fieldings and back home, then took one route to Don Lee's and a different route on the return. It's interesting to note that they didn't check the shortcut on any of those trips. It did not occur to them that she may have ridden that way. We have the parents' statements in police reports, grand jury, and trial testimony, but nobody ever seems to have asked them why they didn't check out that Grove Road. Honestly, after seeing the area in person, it would be surprising if Donna had permission to ride that shortcut alone. However, it was the very first place that her brother David went to look for her. That route was obviously well known to the kids in the area, but perhaps not the adults. It was painfully clear that Donna was gone as soon as her bike was found. The dew on it indicated that it had been there a while, and it was found about three blocks from her grandparents' house and four blocks from home. If she had a problem with her bike, she would have just walked. 
This is Petty John's interview with Avery Dula of January 2nd, 1976. Then what did you do and the rest of the family, including Mr. Clifton, after you got home that evening at a quarter after five? Well, we sat around and talked for a little while, and then we decided we would go out to dinner. How long were you with him then, from that time until you parted that evening? I was with him continuously, except we had to drop my boy by his house for his daughters to babysit with him. Then he ran in and said he wanted to wash his hands, I believe, and he came right back out, and that was a matter of a minute or two. And we were there, and then we went to dinner. We went to Alma's ranch house and found it was closed. So we came back and went to Lyon's restaurant, which was open. I don't know the time then, but I did remark to them that it seemed odd that Alma's was closed, and we looked up and we saw Alma and her husband, ha husband having dinner at Lyon's. And I just remarked it is funny what people do on their day off from work. Were you in your car? No, we were in Mr. Clifton's car. After leaving the restaurant, where did you go? We went to the mall to do some window shopping or looking around. The wives wanted to see some slippers. It was, it was the new mall on Caldwell and Mooney. I believe my wife bought two pair of slippers. I don't remember if Mrs. Clifton bought anything or not. Then from there? From there we went home. We stopped at the Clifton's house, got our boy, and then Mr. and Mrs. Clifton took us home. Then they left, right? Then they left, yes. During the evening, from a quarter after five until you got home that evening, did you note any peculiarities about Mr. Clifton, such as being nervous or appear to have anything heavy on his mind? No, nothing out of the ordinary. We've all gone to dinner many times before. I think we both complained that the size of our steak was, it was pretty small, and we may have to eat some of the wives' meals in order to get filled up. And he was a good eater, and it was on the small side. I think that's all, Mr. Dula. All right. Defense counsel Donahue questioning Bill Rose at trial. Now, you did not see Oscar Clifton after about 11.15 or so that morning, but did you talk to him again December the 26th? Yes, I talked to him by telephone. At approximately what time was it when you talked to him by telephone? Approximately, as near as I can recall, about 9 p.m. that evening. Did this phone call have something to do with the work that Mr. Clifton was doing on the job site? Yes, we discussed some materials and other work. Oscar seems to have had a perfectly mundane but pleasant day of work and family time. No drama, no conflicts, no problems. He got home from dinner with work still on his mind and called Bill Rose with the meter installation updates and fell asleep watching TV. So, how did he kidnap Donna? According to the TCSO, he did it with an invoice book.